You're in the water loop. Hi, this is Travis with Waterloop. High Sierra showerheads are an awesome choice because of their water efficiency, but they have to look good too. And with High Sierra, the design and style options mean they can fit into any bathroom. Finishes come in chrome, brushed nickel, oil rub bronze, and polished brass. In addition to the sleek classic model, High Sierra also offers a half dome design, handheld options, extension arms, and trickle valves to control flow. Plus, High Sierra offers the Reflections model, the only fogless shaving mirror with a built in shower head. You can use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off any of these options at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. I have wanted to talk to someone for a long time about the situation in California where an estimated 1 million people don't have safe, clean, reliable drinking water. Uh, I think it's just absolutely unacceptable in our time that this is still the case. So I'm thrilled to be joined by Susana de Anda. She is executive director of the Community Water Center. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having us. I'm before we kind of dive into the the story in California. Um, I want to hear, I guess, personally about you. How did you get to this fight for water? What what brought you to this cause? Yeah, I'm I'm Susana de Anda. I'm a first generation um, Mexican American. I was born and raised in Salinas. My family heavily focused us around the importance of attending and going to school. Um, the majority of my family are farm workers. And so I early on decided to go to school, not to avoid working in the fields, but to help build a voice and respect for those that do work in the fields. Um, I'm value driven. I have a privilege to work with an organization that's also value driven. And we really do believe, I really believe that if you're a human, you need to have safe drinking water in order for you to thrive as a human being. And that should not be the limiting factor of, you know, the kind of uh, life quality you're going to have. I truly believe that anyone, whatever zip code you live in, you deserve to have safe drinking water without the fear of becoming sick. Mm. And so understanding that I truly believe that um, it's a privilege to work with community water center. We co-founded the organization back in 20, 2006 and to this day, we continue to make some progress to ensure that in California, um, we advance the human right to water, and that someday in California, sooner rather than later, the over 1 million Californians can wake up, drink water from their tap, without the fear of becoming sick, yeah. um, wake up, and not have to worry that our kids brush their teeth and they swallow water they shouldn't swallow, um, wake up, allow our kids to go to schools, and have facilities that provide safe drinking water for our students, and I'll have mothers worry if their child takes bottled water in their backpack. I truly believe we need to uh, change that reality. And this is just in the state of California. Unfortunately, it's worldwide. All humans need to have safe drinking water, and it's really important that we understand that and that we help those that don't have that have that as a reality. And so you grew up in Salinas and you saw this situation around you, huh? You, you saw that there was this problem with drinking water and you decided to get involved in doing something for it. 
Yes, absolutely. You know, I finished, I went to school and um, I was hired to be a community organizer at an organization called Center on Race Party in the Environment. And early on, I started to look at water documents and quickly realized that it was really intentional what communities had safe water and which ones did not. And the communities that we were identifying in the reports that didn't have safe drinking water looked very similar to the communities I lived in, where I come from. Low income, people of color, highly Catholic, farm worker communities. Those are the same characteristics of the communities that we identify not to have safe drinking water in the valley, in the, in the state of California. And so I was making this connection of, this could be my family, where I started to work in. Um, and that's the reality. It's The pollution is highly toxic in low-income people of color communities, very much so like the ones I grew up in. And I believe that it's my responsibility and the responsibility of our government to change that reality. We have to ensure that we limit pollution so we can have safe drinking water. How do you think it is that that there's not a greater awareness and then outrage about this across the country? You know, like one, we've said it, you've said it, a million people. That's a huge number without this basic need for, for health. Um, wh- why do you think that it's just such a, such a, um, a, a story that just kind of slips through the cracks in a way? Well, I think there's multiple reasons why it's not a story that the masses are not quite aware of. I think it's very intentional. I think that in California, water planning pra- practices, there's been a very exclusive strategy meaning that not everyone's been part of the decision-making processes that they should have. Some communities have intentionally been left out of water planning, which means then they've been left out from intentional resources and funding dedicated for their needs. Look, it's no surprise. This is environmental racism. We are working towards water justice because you wouldn't see this reality in Hollywood you wouldn't see this reality in San Francisco. So the low, the higher income societies don't have to deal with this reality. Well, that's racism. That's environmental racism. And that is why it exists. And I think that's why it's an issue that's really hard to talk about. But we need to break that apart. And we need to lean into it. And it's okay to be uncomfortable with it because it's not okay to have communities in California without safe drinking water. Look, We have over a million Californians, and that's an understatement. Mm. We still have, in addition to that, domestic wells. There's a huge data gap in the state of California that doesn't really um, accurately um, exemplify the, the amount of people without safe drinking water. So I can tell you now, it's really important that we understand our drinking water quality from our tap. Get your CCR reports. Understand that. Get informed. Get educated. and Get involved. You know, I am not going to continue to live in a world where we continue to condemn future generations to have this reality. It's got to stop. And so I would say this. It is a public health threat. We're dealing with contaminants that are dangerous. You know, things like arsenic, nitrates, 1,2,3-TCP, perchlorate. We're dealing with contaminants that nobody needs to have in their drinking water. And the movement is, is quite loud and involved, my target communities and priority is to ensure that we work with low-income people of color communities to have 
proper resources and information for them to be part of the movement that ultimately creates a California that we want to live in. Mm -hmm. And we are moving into that direction. When you create a movement, change is slow, but we're moving in the right direction. So to dive into the specific problems a little bit, you've touched on. So you have water systems where the drinking water is contaminated. It's got pollution in it. You have people that are on wells that are getting polluted water. And then there's even been communities that just don't even have, don't even have water coming to them, right? So it's kind of a blend of all of these issues. And it's really something in the, in the Central Valley. If you could kind of describe, I guess, the, the, the extent of the issue. Yes. So the current conditions in California are the following. We have two sources of water. We have groundwater, that's water underneath our feet. The majority of Californians rely on groundwater, which means we have to pump it out. And then we have surface water, rivers, aquifers, and the ocean. You need to have river uh, water rights to tap into surface water. That's very expensive. So the majority of our systems that we work with rely on groundwater. They have one or two wells. Sometimes both are contaminated or their back of well is contaminated which means then that the system is providing unpotable drinking water for residents. So the question should be, well, why are they you know, charging people to pay for toxic water? Well, that's exactly the problem. Hmm. We need to ensure that we create economies of scale with proper treatment that brings relief to the system and residents in making sure that they provide safe drinking water and that the water rates are affordable. In a lot of the systems that we work with, they're smaller in connection. So that means that expensive treatment would be very expensive to divide that with the users. So it becomes unaffordable. So the old way of dealing with the systems has got to change. The new narrative is how do we make sure that we have funding that creates and allows for consolidation of systems where we have better technology, proper treatment, so that we have a sustainable solution in place for a majority of these systems. Now, I'm going to say this, every community is unique and special. So their solutions are gonna be unique and special. And that's where I feel we failed to really address the root problem. Impacted residents and domestic well owners need to be at the, at the forefront of creating the solutions, working with the engineers, working with um, you know the local water board and regulators and the the financial assistance program so that ultimately we create a sustainable solution for our communities. Look, we don't need someone to come down and tell us how to fix it. We need someone that's willing to work with us within to create change. Mm. Now I would tell you the reason why we have a lot of systems that are out of compliance in California, it comes down to basically two things. One, we've allowed contamination to continue, which needs to stop. And two, we have not properly invested into these systems the way we should have. We've invested in other communities and other things. We have not invested in our public water infrastructure in communities like the ones I work in. Look, I'll give you a quick example. We have these things called general plans, these planning documents that counties and cities have to review and update ever so often. It's the way things grow, how communities will grow. Well, in the county that I founded the organization, we quickly realized that under that general plan, they specifically had a policy that said 
15 communities had no authentic future, so therefore the county was lacking in best proper funding. Well, that's wow. called discrimination. That's literally saying, and that's a policy that they enforced, because it's no surprise when you go to these 15 communities, they don't have safe and affordable drinking water. They have old and dilapidated infrastructure. So it has been very systemic, very intentional. So we need to break that apart and change that. And I really believe we need to revive the entire process to ensure that we relook at the way we ultimately want to provide safe and affordable drinking water for humans. We're dealing with people and it's important we recognize that. Sure. Well, you know, you mentioned that there has been some progress since 2006. Um, one of the things I try to talk about on here is progress and solutions and some of the positive stuff, especially so others can learn from it. Um, could you talk maybe about some of that progress that's happened the past 14 years or so? Um, and I'm, I'm really curious also about your approach that kind of blends advocacy and education and organizing all together to, to drive this progress. That's like a lot of questions yes. in one, I know. <laughs> I can unpack that, and I all appreciate right. the question. So, you know, our model of change at Community Water Center is to uh, really ensure that we're a catalyst for community-driven water solutions through organizing, advocacy, and education. In order for us to tackle the four components or the four challenges to water justice, that's how we work. That's how we approach our work, through ensuring that we're creating and working with impacted residents, community-driven solutions, again, through organizing, advocacy, and education. The challenges and buckets that we're trying to change are the following. We want to stop contamination into our drinking water sources. We want to ensure that decision makers ultimately reflect and assist communities that they represent. And we want to make sure that we have adequate infrastructure and institutional capacity to maintain the infrastructure. So those are the challenges that we face for water justice. And that's how through our mission, we approach that in a way that it's really important through in order for us to address these four barriers, we have to ensure we're working within impact, with and alongside community uh, impacted communities. So it's really so about that, this, uh, really about this ownership and empowerment of the community and the community members themselves. Right, and I think at the core, you know, when I early on started the door knock, I was asking people, "Do you drink your tap water?" Hmm. The majority of community residents would say, "No, Susana, I don't drink it. I don't want to get sick because so and so got sick." Then I would say, well, do you know what's in your drinking water? And they'd say, well, you know, it tastes kind of funny or it looks kind of weird. Um, it smells kind of funny. So I can tell you one thing. And I have two samples of water here. Okay. From my early days of organizing. Oh, wow. Jeez. It looks very deceiving. We have mm. primary contaminants like nitrates. This water here has no smell or a taste, but they're primary contaminants, which means they're very detrimental towards our health. And then we have secondary contaminants, like this water. This has manganese and sulfur. It's secondary. Aesthetically, it's very offensive, and it smells horrible. The majority of our residents are receiving this type of water. So, so for people that are, might just listen to this podcast, you're holding up a water that's clear, and you're saying that that has actually the more harmful contaminants, the primary contaminants in it. The exactly. other bottle looks like muddy river water. And that's from things that are less harmful, but make it, you don't want to, it smells bad, it tastes bad, looks bad. But so, yeah, wow. 
To your point, so looks can be very deceiving. That is why it's really critical that we understand our water quality before we assume other things or we decide on any solution. So when early on when we started, it was really important that we understood what people knew. So we would meet them where they would, so we would meet them where they were at and how we can exchange information. When I would go into a community, I already had done a lot of research and I understood the water problems that they had. I wanted to vet that out. And I quickly realized people did not know exactly the contaminant. They weren't saying, oh, I have nitrates or I have perchlorate hmm. or I have TCP or, you know, they weren't, they weren't telling me the actual contaminant. But what they were telling me was we don't drink it. We pay too much and people are getting sick. Well, I have to tell you, as an organizer, that's good enough for me. I knew firsthand already by the reports that nitrates have been linked to cancer, have been linked to the blue baby syndrome. No one needs to be exposed to that. And on top of that, nitrates don't have a smell or a taste. So looks can be very deceiving. Then I would hear stories of, look, Susana, we just boil the water. Well, I can tell you one thing here. If you boil water with nitrate, it only increases the concentration. So once again, for us to change this reality of water justice in California, it's really important that we understand what people know. And then more importantly, that we engage in dialogue to talk about what's happening and how we can address that and change that. So early on, a lot of our work was to mobilize and organize and educate ourselves. We learned a lot. But I also learned that in the, while the community names changed, what was really common was, again, people were paying high water rate for toxic water. People were paying twice for water. Hard, hard, you know, farm worker communities and residents were paying for a water bill they couldn't use but to blush, flush their toilet for doing their laundry. And then on top of that, had to drive to get bottled water. So in essence, paying up to 10% of their household income alone to have safe drinking water. And on top of that, they still had to stress to have plenty of water in the house and stress about if families would come over and visit that they would have enough, enough water or they would tell them you can't drink the tap water. It's a constant stress. So for the first formative years of Community Water Center, we spent a lot of time working on the ground, organizing and educating ourselves with residents to truly understand what people knew. And I can tell you, one of the biggest roadblocks that we found was people just did not have access to good information. Hmm. People, maybe they would receive a notification, but it wasn't released in a language they understood. So that's kind of a waste. If you're going to tell me I have nitrates in my water, tell you know, let me know that in the language I understand. Yeah, those CCRs can be very difficult to understand for sure. Right. So we spent a lot of time really talking about water quality, the importance of working with our local water board so that they would also have the right resources so that we would work with them and complement the board to ensure that we would leverage more resources into our communities. Through time, we've passed drastic policies in California. You know, I think the water justice movement in California is really driving policy in the state of how we want to live and work in California. In 2012, we passed the Human Right to Water. It's the first law in the country. It's in California, AB 685. The human right to water in California, that law was passed on the shoulders of residents that for decades do not, do not have safe drinking water. It was a huge victory, but it was kind of very indicative of what the, the state has, the kind of conditions that we have. 
Yeah, you know, that, thermal conditions. That you had to get something like that passed to make that statement, to call attention to the problem. What what practical change has that brought about that that's been declared? Yeah. You know, passing the human right to water now allows us to have a foundation in the state of California to work off. Now, all of the water agencies and regulators have to ensure that their programs and resources are going to advance the human right to water in California. Look, it does us no good. We passed it in 2012, mm. but we still in 2020, we still have over a million Californians without safe drinking water. It does us no good to pass laws without resources. So while that was a huge victory, and it is a big victory that we have in the city of California, now we're working towards ensuring that we have policies that truly implement the human right to water. And one of those has been one of the biggest historical victories that I, I really believe in the water justice, which is SB 200. The Safer and Affordable Water Act was passed last year. Why that's huge? Well, it's huge because prior to that, there was no targeted sustainable funding available for our low-income communities, including domestic well owners. There was nothing there before. So we knew that in order for us to really solve this problem, we needed to have targeted sustainable funding. Mm. And it was passed last year. Mm. It's at $1.4 billion <laughs> for the next 10 years. Mm. That's significant, but it's not enough, but we're moving in the right direction. I know that's important is that it can't just be like a one-time, one-year cash infusion, right? These small communities, these systems, they need ongoing funding to be able to, to treat water and do, do all that process, right? There has to be that long investment there. Um, has, has that from you know this past last year, has anything changed on the ground in the past year? Is it starting to change in these communities? You know, one thing I've learned as an organizer, um, we have to be consistent and persistent. <laughs> and it's slowly happening. Um, this year, you know, we're all faced with a pandemic. Yeah. That only makes the opportunity for us to refocus and once again, the opportunity to highlight the conditions that many communities already deal with. Look, when you ask us to do a, you know, a shelter or an order, an order to stay home and we don't have safe drinking water, that becomes a problem. So this year, you know, with the passage of SB 200 last year and then this year, the governor, you know, he really did step up. He passed a water moratorium in March. So for residents that are unable to pay their water bill, their water was not going to be shut off. That's those are practices, practices that 10 years ago hmm. we had. We would never think that would be possible, but now it is because the movement is quite alive. And this movement of impacted residents at the forefront of change hold people accountable. And so this year, they we're continuing to work with state agencies to implement the funding urgently and effectively and strategically. Look, our residents can't continue to just wait around for solutions. We're working with government to ensure that we're gonna implement the right solution. So that's slowly happening. It's a huge, I will say, well, it's not fast enough. We're moving in the right direction. Considering a pandemic, we're still tar we're still focused and we're moving forward. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, you know, you mentioned a lot of the contaminants you've mentioned are linked to agriculture. 
and farms. But then a lot of the people in these communities work in agriculture and farms. So just what's that dynamic like? Um, is there any effort by agriculture to try to address the problem? Or what's it like for people who their livelihood depends on these farms, but then it's poisoning their water? Just curious about that. That's a really good question. And I really appreciate it. I would say we shouldn't have to pick one or the other. We need both. We need to have a good job and we need to have healthy, a healthy household with healthy, you know, safe drinking water in our taps. And that's our mission is to work collaboratively, create policies that ultimately help everyone. It doesn't just prioritize one over the other, which I feel for a long time it has been. Um, it's been disfavoring low income people of color who work in agriculture. However, I can tell you now that regional water boards, their discussion is not if we're going to regulate agriculture, their discussion is how we're going to do that. And that's a huge shift. Mm. It's a huge shift for everyone. And I'm a big believer that in order to have thriving farms, we need healthy people. So that's how we organize. <laughs> and slowly we are changing that. And I think it's a huge progress. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it makes sense that agriculture needs to have some regulation here. It's like one of the least regulated entities or businesses in in the United States, and it's the you know leading polluter of water quality, not just in California, but in waterways all over the place. So, um, wanted to ask you about uh, another kind of organization that you founded, the the Water Education for Latino Leaders. Well, um, what's what's the work of that, and why is that needed? Oh yeah. Well, Water Education for Latino Leaders was created with the, the understanding that it's really important that Latino leadership making policy decisions are quite involved and educated around water. The state of California is quite huge, but it's really important that we all understand how water affects us in, in unique ways. You know, when certain leadership vote a certain way, it's really important for them to know if they're, how, they're, how that vote is going to impact a different region in the state. Look, you got to look at your decisions holistically. And I can tell you this. When we say that 1 million Californians don't have safe drinking water, the vast majority of those systems that are out of compliance are in low-income people of color communities. This is a Latino issue. And the Latino leadership has got to understand that and well does understand that. Now, while it is a Latino issue, we need to address it holistically. We need to understand that water justice looks different in different ways. And the more we understand from each other in our jurisdictions, the better we can get at policy. And that's the focus of well, to bring leadership together, have conferences, have hard discussions, and really talk about it. And I think that's, that's really important that we do that for us to create better policy that ultimately is going to help the entire state and not just one section of the state. Well, like you talked about with the beginning in 2006 of the Community Water Center, education of people was like so key, just here's what the issues are and, and what we need to do. So that education, the focus there for the leadership too. Um, you know, it's been, uh, we didn't just have the coronavirus pandemic this year, but we've had a lot of, uh, you know, explosion nationally around uh, racial equity uh, and, and inequity. Um, and obviously, uh, I'm curious about a lot of that was around African American community. Um, but I think there's been eyes opened wider uh, for all people of color. Just curious if there's Benny, maybe how all this attention on equity in America has, has impacted the Latino community and its water challenges. You know, has any of that trickled over to your work or to communities you deal with? Uh, is there more attention of like, hold on, we have to do better for all people? 
Well, I appreciate the question. And I think this, I think that this movement around Black Lives Matter is really important. And it's very pivotal that we all recognize that it's, it's a movement that we need to support mm. because it's an injustice that frankly has lived in the country for a long time. And that needs to be addressed and shifted in water justice. That's the reality. Low income people of color communities have had to live with decades without safe drinking water. That's not okay. So we need to shift that. You know, I really appreciate this quote by Brian Stevenson, which is the opposite of poverty is not wealth, it's justice. And I think that's really important that we understand that. Yeah, that's a really, really good one. Um, just looking forward, what's what's next for you for this whole effort? Or, you know, in, in the short term, the next year or two, um, because you know I look forward to trying to keep track of what's going on out there and, and calling whatever attention I can and, and raising awareness. So what's what's coming up next for you all? Yeah, you know, for I think what's coming up next, which is really exciting for the, for Community Water Center, is we're going to continue to ensure that water policy is driven by impacted residents, so that truly policies are going to be created to help us and not avoid us, but invest in our communities, uh, which means we want to make sure that we have COVID recovery strategies that really focus and prioritize our communities. Uh, we're going to continue to work on drought resiliency so that we are not going to continue to face drought impacts the way we've had in the past. We got to get prepared for that. You know, I worked directly with families that for two years had no running water. You know, that, those are conditions that we are going to avoid. And I'm going to make sure that we work towards avoiding those conditions, that we prioritize the right resources for our communities to not have to deal with that ever again. And we're going to continue to ensure that regulatory agencies prioritize the human right to water to ensure that now in the future, we continue to limit pollution, we prioritize resources, and we plan for a resilient future. We are not going to work towards a California that condemns future generations to have to deal with this reality of not waking up and being able to drink water from the tap without the fear of becoming sick. No more of that. I truly believe that one day in California, we can all have safe drinking water. And that's our vision. I can't wait for that day too. That's that's awesome. Well, Susanna, I am really glad that I got to catch up and, and talk to you. Um, this is such an important topic. Uh, um, and just I know that you're doing great work out there. Uh, keep up, keep up the fight, and you know, look forward to following the progress. Thank you so much. Thank you. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. The Waterloop podcast is brought to you by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart and stylish way to save water, energy, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code Waterloop for twenty percent off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.